Welcome to the Faith Today podcast. I'm Bill Fladeris. And I'm Karen Stiller, here to ask Bill who is on the podcast today. So we have an author and pastor named Arthur Boers from Ontario who has a new memoir out called Shattered. And it's about uh, basically where he reflects on his heritage in the Christian community he grew up in and how his dad, who was violent at times, but still a Christian, how to sort of make sense of that and how that's affected him as he's gone through his life. So it's interesting in the sense that it's an example of how one person has sort of reflected on their heritage. And I think it's relevant to people in the sense of that's beneficial to all of us to do that. Okay, I was about to ask you, (laughs) because the best part about memoir reading for me is that even though it's someone's distinct story, in a good memoir, there's always universal application and takeaway. So have you named that for you? Is that the big kind of connecting point? Yeah, I think so. So one of the things he mentioned was the idea of coming from a background where you're an immigrant family. That was his circumstance. He's from a Dutch Protestant background. And then also sort of the trauma that sometimes comes with coming from another country. A lot of times people immigrate because of some kind of major reason. So Mm -hmm. he's going to be doing a talk in the near future with one of his students. He's taught at Tyndale University. And the student is a person whose family immigrated from China. And so there's interesting overlaps between coming from a place where there's some kind of upheaval that forces you to move and you come to a new country and then how do you deal with that? You've got the first generation, second generation thing happening as well. So in Arthur Boer's case, he left the Dutch Calvinist community that he grew up with already as a teenager and switched over to the Mennonite community that he bumped into. Partly, he says in the podcast, maybe as a bit of a reaction from the violence of his dad and with Mennonites being a peace-oriented community. I think... Like you say, each of us has to sort of apply that to ourselves in a different circumstance. But I think his journey is an interesting one in that way. Yeah, sounds like a brave book. I'll look forward to listening. So, Arthur, your title of your book, Shattered, A Son Picks Up the Pieces of His Father's Rage. So we're talking about fathers and sons here. And part of the journey you reflect on in the memoir is realizing how different you were from your own father and all the ways you didn't want to be like him. Let's talk about some of those things. I'm thinking the two things that are the most interesting to me are a faith and religion-related stuff, and then also masculinity-related stuff. Both come up in your memoir. So let's talk about religion first, faith and church. So we're talking about first-generation immigrants here, Dutch Protestants in the Niagara area, And so I'm picturing this as a sort of a social and religious and ethnic community all rolled into one with some pretty strong cultural values. What Could you tell us a little bit about what are some of the values of that community that you saw either reflected in your dad or in the broader community that? Two of the strong values were that we were supposed to honor the Sabbath. So no working, no spending of money on Sundays. And we were always perplexed by other Christians who would go out to eat after church on Sunday because... That was making other people work. Right. Uh, so that was that was a, a value. And this was something my father honored uh, very well. He worked very hard. He worked six days a week, long days, but he never worked on Sundays, not even on Sunday evenings. And he attended church faithfully every week, just once a day. Our community actually preferred that you attend twice a Sunday, but he he went every Sunday morning. He was not very articulate about his faith. I I hardly ever heard him talk about his faith 
although there was a hymn that he loved quite a bit, and I could tell you more about that. And the other big ethical value that was promoted, the priority that was promoted was Christian education. So we were strongly encouraged to send all our children to private Christian school. And we called it a Christian school, but it really was a Calvinist school. In fact, mine was called Calvin Memorial Christian School. And all the kids and all the students, they were all Dutch. And they were almost all from, uh, if not our congregation, from our denomination. Right. So very much a community where everybody kind of knows each other and lives together, not just in church, but also in the rest of their lives and the rest of the time. So I'm curious, Arthur, about the ambivalence that your parents seem to exhibit towards their church community. Like, I imagine if you're an immigrant family and the church is the sort of the center of your life, wouldn't you be all either all in or turn your back on it and try and build a new community elsewhere? But they're they're like they're going to church once a once a Sunday instead of twice. And you write in your in your memoir, they're sort of grumbling like they'll 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 never hold a position of responsibility in the church because somehow they're a little bit marginalized. So I'm just curious about that sort of ambivalence. Do you want to explain that a bit, or what do you what is how do you make sense of that? Yeah, that's something that I'm not completely clear about. My mom came first in in 48. She was a teenager. She came with her family and uh, they would work six days a week on the farm. And then they would gather as an immigrant community on Sundays for church. They'd get a big bus or a big truck and it would go all around the Niagara Peninsula and pick people up. Wow! And so that was a really important day to reconnect with people and to speak Dutch and to try to figure out this strange new world that they were in. So yeah, the community was really important and my parents were loyal to it. I mean, they gave money and they attended every Sunday morning and they did for a number of years send my sister and me to Christian school, although eventually they decided not to do that anymore. But they communicated to me a sense of being second class in the church and that they would never be given office, especially especially since they only attended church once at Sunday. That was a stroke against them. And then once they pulled us out of the Christian school, and that was a done deal. So it's always been interesting to me that yeah. they could be ambivalent and, and loyal at the same time. And they were pretty surprised when I, in high school, decided to leave the church. That wasn't really done in our community back then. And I was surprised that they were surprised. <laughs> <laughs> Explain more about that. So you write in the memoir that you sort of ended up finding a youth group that had a fair number of Mennonites in it, and that sort of opened your eyes to the possibility of a Christian world beyond the Dutch Protestant community that you grew up in. Is that fair? Yeah, that's a good summary. So I was a very pious child, as you can see from the book already. I I was reading the Bible every day and praying and uh, trying to make sense of the Bible And I actually didn't know other kids who did that. The kids at my church were not that interested. And the way I interpret that now is they were in Christian school five days a week, and they really didn't want to hear more about theology in the Bible. But it was frustrating to me because I wanted to talk about the questions I had and the things I was learning. And then when I was in high school, I got quite involved with inter-school Christian fellowship, and I met other kids who were like me, who were interested in the scriptures and praying and trying to understand God and make sense of the world. And so I really identified with them. This was in Niagara, where there are many Mennonites, and most of the kids in the Interschool Christian Fellowship, ISCF, most of them were Mennonites, and most of the Mennonites all belonged to the same local Mennonite church. So I got more and more involved with them. 
And you also write about a pastor that you met in a United Church, Reverend Stiles, who also sort of mm -hmm. expanded your understanding of what was possible for Christians. Can you just tell us a little bit about that for those who haven't had a chance to read the memoir, maybe? Sure. So my parents, you know, they were not interested in changing churches, but they were very open to other Christians, something I appreciate about my upbringing. So, for example, when they had Catholic friends and we were visiting Catholic friends, we'd go to Catholic church. And that was kind of a, an eye-opener for me, especially because at that point, most of the Christians I knew were quite disdainful towards Catholics. That's another whole story. And then also sometimes they didn't want to make the long drive to St. Catharines, so then we drove to the United Church. We lived in the small town of St. David's in the Niagara region. And so we'd go to the United Church. We knew lots of people there. I knew people from school. The gas station owner was there. My dad was a member of the Lions Club, so he had a lot of fellow members there. The pastor there was a guy named Reverend Donald Stiles. He's a very thoughtful, quiet, introverted preacher. And we really liked his sermons. We would talk about his sermons when we came home. They weren't, they weren't necessarily as elevated theologically as the sermons we were used to in the Christian Reformed Church. But... Um, you know, he, he preached a sermon once where he talked about if Jesus had ever been in love, it would have been with Mary of Bethany. And that insight struck us and really, really thought about it. We'd never, we'd never really thought about that before. And for years after, we thought, oh, that's such an interesting point that he made. So I was able to connect with him, partly because I think he was introverted, so he was quiet like me, and so it's easier to talk together. So I would visit him from time to time in the, in, in the backyard of his parsonage, and, and we would talk about theological things. That's so interesting. I don't know a lot of young people that would set up a one-on-one -on -one interview with a pastor to go and ask them theological questions. Oh, yeah. Well, I was a bit of a nuisance, too. I would sometimes call the Christian Reform ministers on Sunday afternoons to talk about their sermons, lots of times to dispute their sermons. So I was an annoying young fellow in some respects. And later, when I became a pastor, I realized, oh, you're so tired on Sunday afternoons. That's not a time to debrief a sermon with an adolescent. And uh, so now I've, I really feel for those pastors that I would harass in that way. All right. Well, let's move on then to the idea about masculinity then and the, the roles that you saw in the community that you were growing up in and, and, and your father. It sounds to me in the memoir when I read it that a lot of that you found wanting or lacking and that you developed a different idea of who you wanted to be as a man or as an adult Christian? I grew up in a very traditional setting. The, f the father was the boss. The father made the money and what the father said goes. I was a teenager in the early 1970s and we we're an immigrant community. Immigrant communities tend to be more conservative and less prone to change. And that would be true of us. My father did not really talk about his feelings. Uh, the only feeling he was allowed was anger, and he manifested that a number of times. Um, I hardly ever saw my father cry. I don't even remember him crying when my sister died. So he didn't show his feelings very well. And I was more of an artsy kind of kid. I was into feelings and imagination and I knew as a youngster already that I wanted to write, so I didn't fit in some ways. Uh, my father wanted me to be a businessman, and I assumed until I was 12, I assumed that I was going to do that. I didn't ask any questions about it. 
But when I was 12, my grade six teacher told my parents, oh, he'll never go into business. And, and that was kind of liberating for me. As soon as I heard that, I realized, yeah, that's true. I won't go into business. And my father wanted me to be a soldier, which I think would have been a disaster. He also, and he also, as I said, he wanted me to go into business with him, which also would have been a disaster. So I had to very gradually assert that I was not going to be a businessman. I was not going to be a soldier. It took my father years to get used to that. But then when I got married and we had kids, I knew that I wanted to be a different kind of father. I wanted to be involved with my children's upbringing. My wife and I shared part-time jobs so that we could take turns being at home with them. We didn't want to discipline them physically, so we didn't, we didn't hit them, even though hitting was normal when I was growing up. So those are s- some of the aspects. It's so interesting to try to think when we all look back on our lives, how much of that was specific to, you know, my parents' personality? How much of that do I attribute to the community that I grew up in? How much of that was 1970s normal <laughs> in broader Canadian society, mm-hmm. yeah. right? Those are all really interesting, yes. tricky questions. Right. And I, I think one of the things I enjoyed about reading your memoir is that you get into the particularities of the community that you grew up in and you reflect on that. And for example, the attitudes towards alcohol and smoking, you grew up in a Christian family, but there are probably Christians out there who would be shocked to hear that alcohol was normal or even used a little too much or that smoking was considered normal, whereas for other Christians it might not have been. The joke is that sometimes Baptist youth and Christian Reformed youth would do exchanges together. And when the Baptists came to visit the Christian Reformed Church and the the door opened from the gymnasium, they were shocked because of all the smoke, that the billows of smoke that would pour out because many of the young people were smoking. And on the other hand, Christian Reformed youth would be really shocked because they'd visit the Baptists and couldn't believe that the Baptists would spend money on Sundays, go to a restaurant on Sundays. <laughs> so yeah, different ethical standards. And smoking was not an issue and drinking alcohol was not an issue. In fact, my parents started giving me alcohol when I was already 11 or 12, and it was no big deal. Not a lot of alcohol, but you know, occasionally on special occasions or something, I was allowed to have a little bit of wine or something. Yeah. It's just kind of interesting to think about the decisions that we make. Like we get all that heritage from our parents and from the community that we grew up in, and then what do we do with it, right? And it sounds like in your case, quite a bit of it, you said, you know, I need to move on to a different church. I need to have a different understanding of how I can be a man that's not in business and that's not about suppressing my feelings. So it's interesting to read the memoir and and make that journey with you. Do you think that's a common journey that a lot of people have made? Do you hear other people resonating with your story when they come across your book? Yes, I'd say a couple of things about that. One is I taught for quite a while at Tyndale here in Toronto, and a lot of my students are, like me, second-generation Canadians. So that is to say their parents were immigrants, and there are many tensions that they experience between being loyal to their parents and listening to their parents on the one hand, but also being authentic to themselves. There are a lot of pressures and expectations coming from their immigrant parents. So I think that's one parallel that rings true for many people. In fact, one of my former students, she and I are going to do an evening at uh, at my church this Saturday night. And we're going to talk about those very, very kind of questions. I don't know how old she is, but I don't think she's 40. <laughs> And she has three small children, and her mom 
escaped the Cultural Revolution in China, so very, very dramatic political trauma. But she sees all these parallels between my journey and hers, so we're going to have an interesting conversation Saturday night. So I think that's true for many immigrants. And then also, our understanding of masculinity has changed in huge ways since the 1970s. So things that were acceptable or normal back in the 1970s no longer are. And so I've had these kind of discussions with many other men who were brought up in traditional families and then try to do things uh, differently than their fathers did. So it's a, it's a societal, cultural shift to be sure as well. When I look at your memoir, it feels to me like you're sort of digging into understanding your father. And one of the things that you wanted to understand about your father was why he was the way he was and why violence was something that erupted in his life. And so you dig into a lot of different things about immigration, education, having survived World War II for people in Western Europe like the Dutch and the scars that that left from generation to generation. You talk about even physical abuse or physical violence that your father suffered. And so there are all these different factors that your memoir goes into as you try to explain and figure out why your dad was the way he was. I have this quote that I wrote down that is sort of where you seem to end up. It says this, I know he dialed down the brutality that he was taught and imbibed, and that was reinforced by his exposure to two wars. I'm sad and wounded by his actions and choices. I wish that those things never happened, but I don't hold them against him. So I wonder if you could just reflect for us a little bit on the journey of getting to that point. Did writing the memoir, was that really helpful to you in terms of trying to intentionally understand the factors that led your dad to be the kind of person that he was? And does that free you up when you understand that better? Or how far does that free you up? So I set out to write a memoir about my childhood, and I thought that there were three interesting aspects to it. One was being brought up in this Dutch culture in Canada, thinking I was not Canadian, I was Dutch. And of course, eventually, I would visit Holland, and I realized I'm not Dutch. And so I had a confused identity in that respect. If you talk to missionary kids, some of them will talk about being third culture kids. They experience something similar. So I thought that was worth exploring. And then I also was very pious as a child. We talked about that. I felt a sense of call to ministry at the age of four already. And I had a very vivid mystical experience when I was 14. I had all kinds of spiritual disciplines. And I thought that would be worth exploring as well. And then there was the mystery of my father, who was a very successful businessman. He's very smart. He's very well read. He's always worth talking to. He usually had insights that were different than anybody else's insights. He also had a, a violent temper and struggled with alcohol. And my mother would say, she still says, he acted so crazy at times. I didn't know what to do with him. I didn't know what to make of it. And so I thought that I would explore that as well, not in a kind of pointing my fingers, gotcha, accusatory, revenge way, really trying to understand him. I loved my dad, and I love my dad, and I took care of him when he died over over 30 years ago now. It happens that I was the last one to take care of him the last night of his life, shared his bed with him so I could be close and know what he needed. And he was mute. He was no longer able to speak, but I spoke to him in Dutch. So I really cared for my dad, and I care for my dad. And... Uh, I think that the most important thing to ask people is not what's wrong with you, but 
What Happened to You? In fact, that's the title of a book I like, What Happened to You? And, and that's the point. And so it's important to approach people with curiosity because curiosity is what leads us to compassion. If we judge people, we don't learn more and we don't so don't move to a place of compassion. And so that's what I wanted to do with my dad. I wanted to understand the mystery of my dad. And as I was exploring that, I plummeted into a depression. I've struggled with depression all my life. And I realized in the working on it, I realized both that my father had PTSD, which helped me understand a number of the dynamics of, of how he functioned and lived. But eventually I also realized, well, I have PTSD. And that explains or that could explain, I think it does explain, why I struggle with depression, why I can get triggered emotionally. And I've also struggled with severe migraines for a number of years to the point where I would go to the emergency room. At one point, I went to the emergency room three times in a two-week period because they were so severe. I think those are all connected to PTSD. And working through this book, which was a big challenge to do this and uncover it and think about it, And I don't want to be too self-assured about it, but I'm not having nightmares the way that I used to have. And I'm also, I'm not having the migraines I used to have. I'm not sure when the last time is that I took strong medication to manage a migraine or an impending migraine. And so I think that there has been liberation in, in doing this kind of work. That's amazing. That's great. So for readers then too, what do you think they can learn from your journey then? I mean, when I look at it, I wonder, is it kind of an inspiration to say, maybe this is a journey that I should take and I'm thinking about my own family heritage. Is that kind of one of the things you're hoping some of your readers might do? A number of people who have read the book are talking to me about re-examining their own relationships with their parents or things that their parents have done and doing so in a, a, a compassionate kind of way. And I find that exciting. And I think that this might actually be a new avenue of my pastoral work. I think these are the kinds of things that people want to talk about with me. So where does faith come into going through this process? Does it, is it any different for someone who's a Christian to reflect on the benefits they got from their parents, but also the failings of their parents? Does a Christian look at that any differently than someone who would not be a Christian, perhaps? Well, to me, it's deeply a deeply Christian thing to look with compassion on those who are different than us, to look with compassion, even on those who harm us, to try to come to understanding and try to move towards a place of forgiveness. So that's what I, I think that's the work that I was doing in this book. So I think that's how faith comes into it. And for me, that comes easier because I'm trying to follow the model of Jesus, who I think treated people in that very kind of a way. Jesus was quite interested. Of course, the terms trauma and PTSD do not arise in the scriptures. But once you have a trauma-informed perspective, you see them everywhere. We're in the season of Pentecost now, but in the season of Easter, we revisit all the occasions where the risen Jesus encounters people. And what I've come to see in the last few years that all those encounters are meetings between Jesus and the disciples who are traumatized. And Jesus finds ways of being compassionate to them giving them peace, and even unwinding the terrible events that led to their trauma. I don't know, do Christians do it differently? I'm not sure I'd be so bold as to say that, but I, I, I do think that Christian faith has given me important resources for dealing with this. And I do think that this is a Christian task to bring healing to people who are deeply wounded. 
And I think that trauma, you know, we talk about sin or sinfulness and some of those words get loaded and skewed in ways that aren't, aren't that helpful by now. They have too many connotations. They're still true. I still believe in them. But rather than seeing a world full of sinfulness, I tend to see the world now full of people who are traumatized, people who are traumatized or traumatizing. And so the work of Christian faith is to undo that and to work towards healing and reconciliation. I saw that, especially there's a chapter where you write about the other fathers that you knew growing up, the fathers of your schoolmates, and you reflect on some of the ways that they had even more challenging relationships with their parents or fathers maybe who were alcoholics or fathers who were sexual abusers or other even more challenging forms of trauma. And I wonder, to me, that contextualizing and that broadening of the point of view, like a lot of your memoir is sort of thinking about your specific family and your specific community. And then when you make that broadening motion or whatever you want to call it in that chapter, for me, that was really insightful. And I think there maybe is even something Christian about that, about being compassionate and trying to see more broadly the people around you and the struggles that they're going through. So I don't know if you want to comment on that, but it seemed to me when you were just talking about having compassion and seeing other people as wounded, that made me think of that part of your memoir. I went to a high school reunion back in 2007. I hadn't been back to the school for over 30 years, and I was kind of worried about it, actually. I'd heard horror stories about reunions and people being competitive and bragging, and high school was not the happiest time in my life, and I thought, oh, goodness, revisit all those terrible interactions. So I was kind of leery about it. But I have to tell you, for me, going to the high school reunion was like an experience of heaven. And what I mean by that is I had all these reunions with people that I both liked and disliked. So I had amazing conversations with people that I did not enjoy back in high school. And one of the things that I realized was that in high school, we were all struggling. We were struggling really hard and we were trying to do the best we can. And, you know, we were adolescents, so we didn't always do such a great job of it. But I have several friends who experienced severe abuse at home while they were in high school. I had no idea back then. They've talked to me about it since then. And they would tell me, well, high school was a respite. It was a relief from the terrors of home. And so the reunion was great because I felt like we talked to each other with compassion and curiosity and interest, and we weren't writing each other off or dismissing each other for dumb things that we had done back then or mistakes that we made or rudenesses that we had done. So it was a real experience in learning about how to have compassion for other folks. That's a beautiful image for us maybe to wrap up on. Maybe I'll ask you a last question. Arthur, what do you hope people will take away from reading your memoir or what hopeful message could you offer to our listeners as they listen to this podcast about some of these issues, about thinking about family history and even trauma that we may have inherited from our families or from our church communities? I think that we don't need to be afraid to ask hard questions and to look at difficult things that have happened to us. We don't have to be silent about them. We can talk about them. We can talk about them in a way that's compassionate. It's not pointing fingers or denouncing or accusing, but it is a way that leads to better understanding. And when we move to better understanding, when we name these realities, then we also have the choices to live in different ways. And 
that's been the case for me. I've been working on these things in some ways all my life. So my wife and I were different kinds of parents than I was used to, and I'm grateful for that. But more recently, I've been learning more and more about trauma, and that's also helping me as a pastor. So, for example, when you work as a pastor, you sometimes have people in the congregation who keep making decisions that seem disastrous. And in your head, you ask, why are they doing this again? Why do this over and over again? And of course, as a pastor, your duty is to be compassionate and caring and offer support, which I did. But now that I've learned more about trauma, I really understand how people can get stuck or trapped into certain kinds of patterns or repeating certain kinds of behavior that doesn't necessarily seem that helpful. So I find that the trauma-informed perspective is helping me to be more compassionate towards other people and also to think more about social issues. So for example, I've become more and more concerned the last couple of years about Indigenous people here in Canada a huge problem and it's hard to know the way forward. I've been talking more and more to Indigenous people or with Indigenous people. And if you understand that we're talking about cultures that have been severely traumatized over the centuries, that gives you a lot of insight into the gravity and the depth of some of the issues that we face right now. Thank you for listening. Check out more podcasts and subscribe to Faith Today magazine for free at faithtoday.ca. This podcast is produced by the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. If you enjoyed it, please rate or share it.